Welcome, everybody. Um, Dick Forbes is no stranger to this group. Dick has spoken many a time, so we welcome Dick Forbes. Um, just very briefly about Dick. He is the president of Forbes Con uh, Counseling Services, has over 30 years of experience counseling individuals, couples, families on a variety of issues, including conflict, stress, trauma, depression, addiction, and marriage and family issues. He covers a wide spectrum there. Tonight he's going to talk about avoiding the predictable disaster, and he's going to explain what that means. So I'm going to pray, Dick, for you, and then welcome you to the podium. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for Dick and his heart for you, God, and the, uh, the way that you've allowed him to use the gifts that you've given him to help many, many people. We just pray tonight that you'll speak through him in a mighty way, and his words will be your, your words, Lord. We just pray that we'll leave here with a nugget of wisdom hope and encouragement. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, the other night I was um, pulled in my driveway and there was a, a coyote in my driveway and I thought, that is so strange because we live in you know neighborhood and then I go, oh yeah, I remember to order a package from Acme. Did you get it? Okay, all right. <laughs> All right, uh, glad to be back, and I appreciate the invite back. Um, that's better than not be invited. We don't want that guy back. So, um, You know, I, and I also got a children's book and a hula hoop. Now, I did take my medication, and there is a train of thought that goes through all this. So, 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 so listen up. How many of y'all have read the book, The Giving Tree? Well, you may not love it after I read it. So, <laughs> well, it's, it's a sweet story, and I used to read it to my kids, and then it dawned on me one day, and, and let me read this to you. And uh, you'll, you'll get the point. <clears throat> okay, so once there was a tree. And she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come. And he would gather her leaves. And make them into crowns and play king of the forest. And he would climb her trunk and swing from her branches. And eat apples. And they would play hide and seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree. <clears throat> Very much, and the tree was happy. And one day, this little boy takes out his pocket knife and carves a permanent heart in the tree. It says, me and tree, or me and tea. It's a permanent scar. But time went by. And the, the boy grew older, got a girlfriend, so he carved another permanent heart in the tree, main girlfriend. <clears throat> and the tree was often alone. Then one day, the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, come boy, climb on my trunk, swing from my branches, eat my apples, and play in my shade, and be happy. I'm too big to climb, said the boy. I want to buy things and have fun. I want some money. Can you give me some money? I'm sorry, said the tree, but I have no money. I only have leaves and apples. Take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city. Then you will have money and you will be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree, gathered her apples, and carried them away, and the tree was happy. Just take you back to kindergarten. <laughs> Story time. But the boy stayed away for a long time and the tree was sad. And then one day the boy came back and the tree shook with joy and said, Come boy, climb my trunk, swing from my branches and be happy. I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm, he said. I want a wife. I want children. So I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house, said the tree. The forest is my house, but you can cut off my branches and build a house. 
then you will be happy. And the boy cut off the branches and he carried them away to build his house. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long, long time, and when he came back, the tree was so happy, she could hardly speak. No, boy, she whispered, come and play. I'm too old and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat that's taken far away from here. Can you give me a boat? <laughs> Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you, will be, then you can sail away and be happy. And the boy cut down a trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. After a long, long time, the boy came back again. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left for you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You, can't, you cannot swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, said the tree. I wish I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump, and I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. The end. It dawned on me one day, this is not a nice story. <laughs> is it? <laughs> you know, great children's book, and, and like I said, I used to read it to my kids. And, but you get the point. You know, when we have prodigals, what do they want? Everything. Everything. And what does that turn us into? Stump. Stump. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and, and, you know, uh, you know we, we love our kids, and we want to do for our kids, and, and we want to do those things, and, and we think if I give them these things, it'll fix it. Well, this will be the last time they'll ask for something. This is the last time they'll hear this. But, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it ends. And, and so they, they, they continue to take and take and take, and as much as we love them. So, you know, the story kind of gives you that impression of, I don't know if he intended it for, to be that way or just a sweet children's story, but it, it takes its toll on us as parents. And so what I, what I wanted to talk to you about tonight is, you know, codependency is very simple. I ain't happy unless you're happy. It's, it's just that simple. And so we're only as happy as our unhappiest child is. You know, and that fluctuates all the time. And, and I hear parents, they said, well, I just want my kids to be happy. And I say, is that really, really what you want for your kid? I say, what about integrity? What about hard work? What about honesty? What about kindness to other people? And if they have those things, they're generally happy. But if I'm just trying to make my kid happy, and I throw things and throw things and throw things at them, it lasts about 15 minutes. You know, it's like when you get that new car, you, you know, you park it far away, and then there's that one day you got the nick in it, you know, ah, there goes my new car feeling. It's all over with. So, so it doesn't last. Um, Shakespeare wrote in Macbeth, and I always love this quote, he said, each new morn, new widows bow, new orphans cry, new sorrow strikes heaven on the face. So we live in a world of sorrow. We live in a world that we struggle in. We will live in a world that, you know, we would give up our life for our kids. We take a bullet for them. And, you know, I, I, but I've got to get to that point in, in dealing with my child that at some point, when do I bless and release? When do I... And that's the hardest place to get to. It just is. And, but how do we get, you know, how do we get to this spot? And um, have y'all been through the parenting pro prodigal parenting process? I know Steve has. Well, the book is great, and there's a line in the book that just stuck with me more than anything. <clears throat> Come on in. We won't stare at you. <laughs> That's all right. But there's a line in that book where he says, you know, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and God showed up and said, Adam and Eve, where are you? You know, and they found them hiding in the bushes with fig leaves on. Who did God blame? Or who, who didn't he blame? Himself. Himself. 
Yeah. And I know, as, as with my prodigals, I can't tell you the times I blame myself over and over and over and over again. You know, where did I go wrong? What did I do? Why won't they come home? Why won't they talk to me? <clears throat> and, and so, you know, you just carry that guilt and shame around, it seems like, forever. So how do, I, how do I prevent that? How do I prevent things moving forward in my life? Well, have you ever heard the, uh, the term normalization of deviance? I'm sure you all have. You know. Everybody's heard that term. So. So let me explain what it is. Do you all remember where you were when the Challenger exploded? Mm -hmm. I remember exactly where I was at Home Depot. And it was uh, 1986. I think it was in January 29th, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. And, you know, um, I, it was about number nine or ten in the shuttle program that had gone up. And, you know, prior to that, um, there had been no catastrophes, no disasters, nothing along the way. And then, um, prior to that, of the seven previous shuttles that had gone up, there had been documentation about the O-rings. And there's the O-ring, and then there's a backup O-ring inside of that. And uh, the documentations had said it was damaged. Even the second one was damaged. And so the engineers were, were throwing them. In fact, there was one documentation that's, that called it a predictable disaster. He said, this is what will happen. There will be fatalities. It will be catastrophic. There will be explosion. He was 73 seconds off. He said it would happen on the launch pad. And so there had been warning after warning after warning. Now, NASA was under the gun to get these shuttles up. They were, they were, they were you know, government said, let's get this thing going, let's move it along. And even back to 1977, there had been some concerns about these O-rings. And also, there was a, a drop-dead temperature that they didn't launch at. Because below that temperature, the, that outer O-ring, which was very, very flexible, became brittle. Well, guess what the day they launched the temperature was? It was below the threshold. Engineers that day, don't launch, don't launch, don't launch. Well, NASA had the mentality, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, we haven't had catas catastrophes before. It's, it's working okay. Let's just keep going. Well, the predictable disaster came. Y'all remember the Columbia? Um, it re-entry, the heat shields had, had been knocked off during the launch. Well, there had been four prior missions where the same heat shields had been knocked off, but there was no, there was no problem. And so the term, you know, normalization of deviations means the normal was that everything gets addressed. Everything gets addressed. And so they didn't address the normal, and so they deviated from the normal, and the deviation became the new norm. And when I heard that, I went, that's the human heart. That's every single one of us. We deviate from the standard. We ignore things. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, and you know, when I, when I turned 30, I looked back at my 20s and thought, what an idiot. <laughs> well, when I turned 40 and looked back at my 30s, I went, what an idiot. 50, idiot. 60, idiot. About turned 70 in a couple of years, and I'll go, what an idiot. <laughs> Don't we all look back and should have, could have, would have in, the, in this parenting journey? Um, there's, there's several other documentations where this is, this is not, you know, I printed off somebody. The, it was the Bhopal, India um, accident was with um, methanol, and I can't pronounce the last name of that gas, I want to try. Over 3,700 deaths, over 500,000 injuries, poor maintenance practice, safety system out, system out of service. Normal practice would control these plant upsets. Flicksboro, England. Failure of a poorly engineered bypass line exploded, resulted in 28 deaths, 36 on-site injuries, and severe damage in the community. No mechanical engineering exper expertise on site. Critical mechanical design without engineering, engineering oversight is unacceptable. Piper Alpha Platform, the North Sea. 167 deaths and loss of a major North Sea oil production. Poor maintenance and turnover practices caused the accident by starting a system with equipment removing, removed allowed a massive leak. Poor maintenance practices. Channel view tank explosion, 17 deaths, cause of accumulation of a combustible mixture in water tank, which was actually operated as a reactor. Restart of a compressor caused the explosion. Houston chemical complex disaster, 23 deaths, 314 injuries, caused by poor maintenance control, allowing a mix-up in the tubing line. And it goes on and on and gives more examples of that. Even COVID, it talks about 
that it was a predictable disaster at some point. So, you know, um, that's what the predictable disaster is, not only with our, our kids, but with ourselves. I don't know about y'all, if I've gone through this journey, you know, I wanted to blame everybody else. I wanted to get mad at God. You know, why, why is this happening? You know, I was a good dad. I, I did the right thing. But, you know, as time goes on, God has a way of forcing you to look at the mirror and put a sticky note up there that says, you're looking at the problem many times. He gets our attention. Now, the, the thing I said about when God didn't blame himself, at some point you and I have to quit blaming ourselves because our kids are adults. They're making adult decisions. They're doing adult things. And they choose to alienate, estrange, you know, be a prodigal in, in our lives. And, and that's why I've got to make sure that <clears throat> at what point do I quit taking out the bullwhip and beating myself over that over and over again. So what are predictable disasters with your kids? Well, we all know what they are. We all know what they were. I should have done this. I didn't pay attention to this. You know, poor maintenance over here. And, and so we have all those predictable disasters in our life when we deviate from the norm. And what is the norm? You know, what is the norm? What is the standard that, you know, how should we raise our children? Well, there's some pretty basic things that we, we want to teach our kids along the way. And, and when you go through this, I don't know about y'all, but you suffer. There's no pain like this. I mean, you go to bed thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. You go to the bathroom thinking about it. It just does not leave you. And, and you know, over time, you, you remember the story of Esther in the Bible in the Old Testament? You know, um, you know, Xerxes was king, and he got real drunk with 180 of his buddies. And, you know, he, he called his queen Vasti because she was a, a looker. He said, come parade yourself in front of all, all my drunk buddies. And she said, I ain't doing it. <clears throat> this is the Dick Forbes version, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there was a, a, a social norm crisis at that point. They had a cabinet meeting, got rid of Vasti. And so they went out into the country and, and brought in, scholars say, over 1,000 young girls. And they would have been from the age of about 13 to 7. 17 was old. And they had to go through a year-long beauty treatment for one night with the king. And there's some things what they have gone through, you know, a lot of oils, a lot of this, a lot of that. But can you imagine a year of that? Well, some of y'all might like that. I would, <laughs> you know. But uh, they had to go through this. And I started thinking, you know, um, God, what's our beauty treatment? And, and it always comes back to this one thing. It's suffering. Because what does suffering do to you and me? What does it make us more like? Right. Because what does it knock away? All the pride, all the ego. You know, I'm not as noble as I thought I was. I'm not as courageous as I thought I was. I'm not as smart as I thought I was. I'm not as righteous as I thought I was. I mean, it knocks the stew out of you and gets rid of that stuff. It just does. And so... We're all in God's beauty treatment program right now. You know, so that we can see that reflection of a self right there. Now, some of us, and, and, we, and we know some of these people, um, there's, a, there's this obscure little verse in Ecclesiastes, and it says, the old, the old foolish king is beyond admonishment. That's all it says. Think about that, though. There was this king that when he spoke, it was law. Everything that came out of his mouth was right. Anybody disagree with him got the head whacked off, probably. But you get to a point where you cannot be admonished, that you cannot be corrected, that you cannot be told, you know, this was a predictable disaster in your life. You know, I don't ever want to get there. I don't want to get to the point where I can't be admonished, that I know too much, I'm too smart. Basically, the king is just a walking tomb just waiting for death. That's all he is at that point. So as you go through this journey, do I, do I listen to other people? Do I seek counsel from other people when I have that estranged child or that prodigal child out there that lives there? But it's just that obscure little verse that says the old king couldn't be admonished anymore, and he was foolish. And so as we go through this journey right now, we've got we to gotta deal with that. So what happens to us when we're in that journey? The predictable disaster. What begins to take place? Well, there's guilt. There's shame, there's anger, there's lack of forgiveness, there's bitterness that we experience. All these things begin to take place in us emotionally. We're angry because we're hurt. We're angry because of what's happened to us along the way. Um, I, I may have told you this. Have any of y'all ever heard of the Mongolian peasant theory? 
Y'all ever heard that before? Maybe I hadn't told you. It's interesting. Well, there was apparently this, this psychologist that worked for Stalin during World War II. And he had this reputation that he could convince anybody to confess to what a Stalin accused him of, whether they did it or not. And so after the war, he was interviewed by this Western reporter, and he said, you have this reputation of being able to do this. And he goes, how did you do it? He goes, I used the Mongolian peasant theory. You know, we're all familiar with that, right? So he goes, I have no idea what that is. Well, what, what we would do is we would find a Mongolian peasant, probably the poorest person on the face of the earth, and we would bring him into this office. And it was a very authoritarian office, you know, big oak desk, hardwoods, orientals, a lot of brass everywhere. And there would be this crisp general sitting behind the desk. And the peasant would ask, you know, why am I here? And the general would say, I got a thousand rubles for you in this desk drawer. They're yours. He says, well, what do I have to do? You just got to push this button up here. Well, what happens when I push that button? He says, uh, somebody dies. And he goes, somebody I've never done anything to me that I don't know. Yeah, but it's somebody we want to die. And, you know, I can't do that to somebody I've never seen, never done anything to me. I can't kill anybody. Think what you could do with a thousand rubles. Think how you could live the rest of your life. So he talks the peasant into it, pushes the button, somebody dies. Around five years later, the peasant commits suicide. We go back in, get all the rubles, put them back in the coffer. So what's the point of that story? You know, the peasant was full of shame and guilt, and the only way to relieve that guilt was how? A life for a life, you know, was there. And he said, what, we, what I would do is I would find these people, and I would find out what their Mongolian peasant, what is it they're so ashamed of, so embarrassed of, and have so much guilt about? And I tell them, if you will confess to this, that guilt and shame will go away. It will. How many of us have tried to deal with our sh shame and guilt when it comes to our prodigals? I'll do anything to get rid of that guilt, to get rid of that shame that's there. You know, what button do I have to push to deal with this in my own life? And so we do. We deal with that anger. We deal with the bitterness. And, and also, too, you know, I've always thought with bitterness, you know, you can't have a sense of superiority without bitterness. You can't. I, I would never do that to anybody. I would never treat somebody that way. I'd never talk to somebody like that. I would never act that way to somebody. Haven't we all said that? But I remain bitter because I have that sense of superiority. If I don't get rid of it, it's a predictable disaster in my life. Bitterness will destroy me. It will eat my soul in the long run that's there. What about anger? Where does that come from? It comes out of fear. You know, what am I afraid of? Well, fear is one of those things that it's the kind of fear that you and I don't recognize. You know, we look out the window, window, and, you know, there's a black funnel cloud coming at us, right? That's real fear. That's duck and cover time. It's the kind of fear that you and I don't recognize in our life. It's that kind of fear that just kind of creeps into our life. It's not a Friday the 13th movie. It's not a trembling in my boots. It's, it's carbon monoxide is what it is. And it kills us. Bitterness kills us. Pride kills us. It's all carbon monoxide. And, and so the fear is this. The fear comes out in my parenting. It comes out in my emotional reaction to my prodigals. It comes out in knee-jerks. It comes out in codependency. It comes out in people-pleasing. But it especially comes out in anger. Because that fear drives me to that. It drives me to the point where, you know, I need to be right about everything. It drives me to be a last-word freak. It drives me to be critical and judgmental of other people to make myself feel superior. And on and on, it comes out, of course, in anxiety and, and, and all those other things. But it, you know, when I get, get down and deal with that fear, I begin to deal with the guilt, the shame, the anger, the bitterness, all those things that are there. You know, if, if God is not my fear, something else will be. If the fear of the Lord is not what I embrace in my life, something else I'm going to fear in my life. And, and what is the fear of the Lord? Well, if you go to Isaiah, and you remember when Isaiah had that moment, woe is me, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. He recognized what a sinner he was in the eyes of God. That's the fear of God. 
It's not, you know, trembling or anything. Any of y'all see the old Monty Python movies? You remember those? There was a scene in there where, you know, God shows up. And they're all, they're all bowing down, going, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. You know, and God just goes, I just want to talk. And I thought, there's a lot of truth in that. No, I'm afraid. And, and so I've got to deal with the fear. I've got to deal with not being admonished. I've got to deal with, you know, preventing those predictable disasters in my life and dealing with myself that, that's there. <clears throat> and so I've got to stop parenting out of fear. I've got to bless and release at, at some point. I think my greatest fear is in my nightmare. And what is my nightmare? I'll never be restored. I'll never have a relationship again. That, that just brings fear over me. And, and I, the nightmare that you and I have is our greatest fear, that we, we, we gets a hold of us at times. Um, I've also got to stop what I call linear thinking. We Christians are real good at bad is bad and good is good. You know, we're, we're real good at thinking that way, and that's linear thinking. Well, the old Chinese story is about this Chinese farmer who uh, worked for the Lord, him and his son. There are other, uh, you know, farmers that worked there. Part of their, they had to pay the Lord, you know, some of their harvest. Well, one day this horse shows up on this Chinese farmer's property. And all his neighbors came out and said, man, this is great. This is so, you are the richest man in the valley now. This is so cool. And the farmer goes, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. And his friends were looking like, you're nuts. Well, the very next day, the horse runs off. Friends come out, oh, man, this is horrible. This is bad. This is the worst. The Chinese farmer goes, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. Horse comes back a few, few days later, and he's got several horses with him. They run right into the corral. Again, his neighbors come out. Richest man, this is unbelievable. God's been so good to you. This is, this is unbelievable. Chinese farmer says, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Well, the son was going to break one of the horses. So he, he gets on the horse. The horse bucked him and broke his son's leg. He was his only help. And all his neighbors came out and said, this is catastrophic. This is terrible. This is the worst thing that could happen. Farmer said, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Well, a few weeks go by, and the Chinese army was coming through all the villages, taking the young men off to the suicidal war. They didn't take his son. He had a broken leg. This is good. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's how we look at our kids sometimes. This is horrible. This is the worst. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You know, maybe he needed to be, or she needed to be a prodigal for a while. Maybe it's what God needed to do for them. I don't know. And that's when I stopped that linear thinking. I stopped thinking good and bad, you know, in black and white, but realized that, that God's in charge of, of, that, of that child of mine. You know, and maybe it's exactly where they, they need to be. I've got to quit trying to get them to understand my spirituality. You know, we're, we're quick to rush out and tell our prodigal, well, God told me this. Stop doing it. Because how does it work for you? Not too good, typically. Well, God didn't tell me anything. And, and so, you know, we, we, we run out, and I've got I've to have those boundaries in my life and realize that I can't dictate their spirituality. I've got to leave them in God's hands and leave them exactly where they are and realize, you know, the prodigal son's father, I guarantee he knew that, that his son of his was better off in God's hands than his own. Did it break his heart to let his son go? Absolutely. But he blessed and released at that. So where does that leave me? What do I focus on? Well, here comes the hula hoop. You want to demonstrate? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go to the dollar store and buy yourself a hula hoop when you leave here. Put it on the ground. You stand in the middle of that hula hoop. Everything inside that hula hoop is your business. Everything out here ain't your circus. Not your dog in that fight. What's inside my hula hoop? Honesty, integrity, hard work, charity, gratefulness, gratitude, how I treat people. You know, don't want to get better at pickleball. You know, I got control over those things. 
Well, I love pickleball. <laughs> I've, I've started doing couple counselings with pickleball. <laughs> We're going to take out your inner aggression, how you feel about your spouse. You know. You know. But isn't that a great illustration of where we need to stay? Um, there's a book, and I forgot to, to um, get off the exact title, but it's called um, Leave the Doormat Out and Keep Your Mouth Shut. <laughs> you know, in dealing with adult children. And, and so, you know, I've got to stay there. I've got to function inside of this because it's what I have control over. I know me, when I start thinking out here, I get resentful and bitter. Why are they acting that way? Why are they being such a knucklehead? Why aren't they saying what they were going to do? Why aren't they getting back? Why are they treating me like this? And where does that take our thoughts and our hearts? Right to bitterness, resentment, hurt, anger. It does. But I know the more that I stay focused here, one, I'm more productive. Two, I'm generally happier. And three, I, I bring about some peace in my life. Remember these three C's. These are the three C's that I live by. I didn't cause it. I can't cure it, and I can't control it. And it's the question I have to ask myself. Did I cause that? And if I didn't, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. And the more I live by the three C's, the more I live inside this hula hoop with my prodigal. It's amazing when I take my hands off of everything and, and give that release to God that it seems like things start to happen then. I can't explain it. You know, I talk to people that are in recovery all the time, and you know, when I got into AA and got on my recovery, it seems like good things started happening to me. You know, you hear that all the time from people that are in recovery, that, that are out there. So, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've got to make sure that I'm staying focused there. Funny story, um, I'm up in Cartersville, and we're big time up there. We have one Publix. So we're, we're big time. But take this, we have the world's largest Kroger. It is a big Kroger. It's got everything you can think of in it. Rainy days, I go do my laps in there. Well, anyway, um, this was probably 15, 20 years ago, and uh, it was July 3rd, the day before the 4th, and um, grocery store was packed. And stopped and got three or four things for the, for the holiday. Well, got in the 10 item only line, and there were several people in front of me. Now, you have pet peeves, and I have pet peeves in life. Mine's the 10-item only line. <laughs> if you've got more than 10 items, you need to be shamed, you need to be banished for 30 days, and I'm sure shooting laser beams in the back of your head. You know. Well, get in the line, four or five. Well, guess who was at the front of the line? Grandma. Guess what Grandma had? She had a buggy full. I start having murderous thoughts about Grandma. <laughs> it doesn't say about 10 items. It says 10 items only. So then she has coupons. <laughs> Cartersville's a small town. Everybody knows each other. So they're out there yakking away. You know, they know each other from church or something. And I'm about to come on court. So I got up to the line, and, and the cashier looks at me, and she goes, I'm so sorry you had to wait. And I looked at her, and I said, you know what? I said, if that's the worst thing that happens to me today, I said, it's not a bad day. And she laughed a little bit. She goes, I, I wish everybody thought like that. Now, what happened to me? You know, I got out of here, and quit being so emotional about it, and got up here. Forbes, is this going to matter 10 minutes from now? Is this the worst thing that can happen to you today? You know, obviously it's not. And, and so on this journey, if I live inside my hula hoop, did I cause Grandma to get in 10 items? No. Publix is very customer-oriented, and they're, they're not going to turn her away. Um, could I cure it, and could I control it? No. Why am I upset? Here's how crazy we really, really all are. When Grandma's driving 50 in the fast lane, why do we get so bent out of shape? And we go by and give her the high sign. Right? Did you cause it? Can you cure it? Can you control it? Why am I so upset about those things? You know, so I, I got to change those things. And... You know, I've got to stop thinking linear. I've got to deal with my shame and guilt. I've got to live inside my hula hoop. I've got to realize I don't want to be a stump in life. I've got to have those good boundaries. I've got to live inside of this that is here. Um, Hamlet, one of Hamlet's lines that says, um, and I love this, he's talking to Horatio. He says, more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt up than any of your puny philosophy, Horatio. So we think it's the end of the world, but Hamlet says, there's more things in heaven that we would not have never thought about, ever. That can, the possibilities 
of, of, of this all happening and, and, and coming together on this. Um, uh, Steve and I have a friend, and, and, and Susan have a friend in Cartersville named Scott Planner, and he, he owns Scott's Barbecue. If you ever get up there, best pulled pork. And um, one day I was talking to Scott, and, and this is a few years back, and, and Scott, he lost a daughter in a car wreck, horrible single car, car wreck, so couldn't get her seatbelt off, the car caught on fire, just a horrible, horrible death. And I was talking to him about it, and I was telling him, you know, and I said, Scott, how do you get up every day, you know? And I said, I got this pain in my life with my kids. Well, he took his finger and he pointed right at me, and he goes, you still have hope. And that went through me like a knife. We still have hope. The heart's still beating, their heart's still beating, there's still hope here. It's for you and I. I, I jotted down some verses that, that, that just brought tremendous comfort to me over the years. Psalm 38, 14, the Lord is near to the broken heart. Isaiah 42, 3, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking wick he will not snuff out. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you walk through the fire, I will not let but not, the flames will not burn you nor set you ablaze. How many of y'all felt like you've been through the river, been through the fire, been through the furnace through, with this? Again, it's just something that doesn't end. You know, I, I often think, would death be easier? You know, I don't want to find out. <laughs> but but you, you know, it's it's it, we want to get out of that pain and what we can do. Um, let me leave you with one last story. I'm a plethora of stories. <coughs> Jackie might say I'm a plethora of something else, too. <laughs> Do I have it? Can I bring it with me? Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you the story. <coughs> it, it's, it, this was happened during the Vietnam War. And there was this guy, he was, he was a lieutenant in the Army, and he flew reconnaissance planes to take pictures real high. His name was, uh, uh, last name was, um, Dawson, Daniel Dawson, and one day he goes out and does his job, and he's flying, but he doesn't return, and so, you know, the Army can't find him, he's missing in action and all this kind of stuff, the, mili the Army can't give the family any information, they don't know anything, well, he had a brother that lived in California, his name was Donald Dawson, well, Donald was married, sold everything he had, left his wife for 20 bucks, and took off for Vietnam. And he gets over there, <coughs> and you know they don't want to let him go into the to the to the Viet Cong area into the jungle, but he does anyway. And he's carrying all these flyers with him. And you know he, he runs into some of the enemy, and he gives them these flyers. Everyone, you see my brother, you know, you see my brother. So they called him the brother, the Viet Cong did, Vietnamese did, and and they thought he was crazy. Well, they ended up capturing him, and he was in, in prison for about nine months. And he said they treated him well. They didn't abuse him. And they come to him one day, and they, they had his brother's flight jacket. And they showed him the grave, said, your brother's dead, go home. So he goes back home, and they told him, we will take care of your brother's grave until the war's over with. So he goes back home, and you know, of course he's brokenhearted that he finds out about his brother with that. But you know, you think about the prodigal son story, culturally, that older brother should have gone out looking for his younger brother and jerked a knot in his head. Said, look what you're doing to dad. Look how you're treating him. But we know about the older brother, what he was like. But you know, the beauty of that story is you and I have an older brother. We have an elder brother that's looking for your prodigal right now and wants to bring him home or her home, wants to reunite, wants restoration. Jesus is a gentleman. He is an absolute perfect gentleman. He says he stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't push his way in. And he's doing the same thing. And you and I have to come to that place that our kids are better off in his hands than anything that we can do of our own trying to control things, of us trying to control the spirituality of everything. I've, I've got to live here. I've got to stay within here. But rest assured, we all have that elder brother that's looking for our prodigal. He's not staying at home. He's out there looking for that, that kid to want to bring him home. What are those circumstances? I don't know. You know, is this good? Maybe, maybe not. Is this bad? Maybe, maybe not. I got to quit thinking linear too along the way. All right, that's all I got. Any, any questions about what we talked about tonight? Did it ring home? Okay, good.
you know, sometimes you think all they have to have is a bomb or, <laughs> or hit home. <laughs> so. All right. Well, you mind if I close the prayer? I think we got oh, we do have questions. Yes. My oldest son, you know, he's disabled. Um, he lives with mom. I still have contact with him. He is 30, um, he turned 30, 35 this year. Um, I have a daughter who is 30, she'll be 33 this year, and my youngest will be 32. Um, I did have dinner with my daughter about two years ago. That's, I haven't had any relationships with them about 15 years now. And <clears throat> I did go down and have dinner with her. She, she lives in Savannah. She uh, has a, uh, she's got a cool business, what she does, but she teaches at some big Christian school down there. But she has a side business for dancing. Um, anyway, so we had dinner. And I went with my mouth zipped. I'm just going to listen. And, and she said some things I needed to hear. And she said some things that weren't true. <clears throat> and, you know, we left. Love you, love you, big hug, you know. I'm going back on cloud nine. I made this horrible mistake afterwards. She was choreographing the Nutcracker down there in Savannah. I sent her a bouquet of red roses and a Christmas tree. How dare you cross that line? Hadn't heard from her since. You know, that that one just oh that one just destroyed me. Um, I've had a little bit of contact with my youngest. He's he's a full-blown green beret, and you know um, he's got that macho part of him. And he actually I got my first Happy Father's Day in 14 years this past year. So yeah, I got a Merry Christmas from him this year too. So again, I, I got to keep my hands off. I can't pounce. I can't leave. I can't say, let's start texting. Let's go and do stuff. So I got to stay here and not think linear. This is good. This is not good. So, you know, that's kind of my story with that. So they're productive citizens. You know, thank goodness. So I shouldn't send the Valentine's card. I don't even know who the person won't get to. Don't send it. Yeah. Don't send it. You know, and you know, I, I even tried to buy my kids. I went to my um, investor and said, "Here's what I want you to do. I want you to open each one of these kids an investment account." I said, "You can even deal with them." I text them, and nothing. I'm thinking, "You're leaving money on the table," you know. So I tried buying my kids. You know, so we try everything under the sun to do this. And uh, so we'll go to all kinds of lengths for, for restoration, but God has His his way of just quit. Cut it out. You know, I'm in charge here, not you. We think we know what's best, and we really don't. When it doesn't go right, we pick up the phone and call God. You know what you're doing? You sure you got this? Because it's not going like it's supposed to go in my life. Well, it, Jackie said I couldn't mention anything about her. <laughs> but, you know, God brought her into my life. And I think the healing started then. You know, that, um, sorry. <clears throat> but it, it did start then. That We've been going seven years now. So, But to get where I am today, it's been part of that process. You know, she's a very wise woman. And <clears throat> he's also wise, you know what? I own that. Yeah, but it's it's been a culmination. It's you know it's you know John, it's coming here to speak to tell my story has been part of the healing. You know, it's meeting other prodigal parents. You know, Steve and Susan have been a big part of that for me too over the years. <clears throat> you know, so it's it's you know God brings these people into our lives. And, you know, to get to where I am today, I, I, I can't point to any one thing. It's been a lot of hard work. It's been clinging to God. Um, you know, I, I don't miss my time with God. I don't miss a day. Um, you know, and <clears throat> I just, if I don't have that intimacy on a regular basis, I, there's something missing in my life. And, the only the place that brought me to this place more than anything was brokenness. It was absolute shattering, and, and I know some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking. About. It ha we have to go through the beauty tree to, to get to this place. That's it. So. Mm -hmm.
then we hope that our particles will be broken too and they'll yeah. pick up the sun and call you one day. Yeah. But you know, and also too, fear, I've, I've come to the place too, I'm not fully there, but I've got to accept that there may never be any restoration of this life. And there's a reason for that, a purpose for that. And what it is, I don't know. It scares me to death that that may happen. But I, I, you know, that's part of this journey too, of letting go of everything. Did you have a question? Oh, okay, all right. Okay, all right. Listen, there's nothing magical here. It's just the absolute abundant grace of God in all our lives that gets us to that place. And, you know, grace, God gives it to people who don't deserve it. He gives it to people that don't ask for it. And he gives it to people who, who don't thank him for it. That's what God, that's the message of the Bible. And sometimes we think, well, I got to be good to get God's grace. Well, that's fine. But he still gives it to you when you mess up, when you're not good, when I'm not good. Oh, there's many, many nights I'll shake my fist at him. I was irreverent. I was disrespectful. You know, oh God, I put him in the dock. I cross-examined him. You know what I got back? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm talking about. You've been there. You know, God, where are you in all this? I'll tell you a great psalm to read is Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 is written by this guy named Heman. And Heman was a, uh, a member of the Korahites. The Korahites wrote a bunch of the 40s and the 80s in the book of the Psalter. And, and Heman was actually the grandson of Samuel. And so David appointed these Korahites to write these. They were, they were poets, you know, is what they were. I always think, of, how many of y'all remember Dopey Gillis? You remember Maynard G. Krebs? That's what I always think of this guy. I think, you know, because he was that poet, that, you know, kind of thing. <clears throat> anyway, so Psalm 88 starts off with, it starts off dark. It starts off very dark. And, you know, you read most psalms, they, they may start off, my enemies are after me, you know, where are you, God? But by the end of the psalm, it's what? I'll praise you all the day of my life. You're my fortress, you're my shield. Psalm 88 ends in this line that says, darkness is a better friend than you are, God. Mm-hmm. It is dark from beginning to end. Why is that in the Bible? Because you and I have been there. We've been exactly where Heman was. He was irreverent. He was disrespectful to God. And, and it's that way through the whole Bible. It says, you know, do, do your wonders show to those that are in the grave? Do you raise up those that are, that are going to see you one day? You've taken away my family and my friends. And what I like about the Psalms is it never tells us what's really going on. And so we can personalize them. And then that, that Psalm has probably been, been you know, my, my Psalm through this whole process too. So Scripture has been part of it. You know, other people have been part of it. Um, you know, it, you know, you get to the point though where you kind of get talk, tired of talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you just get to that point. So when people ask me about my kids, so, you know, we, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you get to that point where you know, I, you know, Jackie said, just tell them your kids are busy. <laughs> so that's what I tell them now. <clears throat> you know, so that's. The question: What do what do parents of prodigals? How do they handle this if they don't believe in God? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them come to God, you know, because they have no place else. But it's like anything in life: How do they handle cancer? How do they handle divorce? How do they handle death? Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 an empty um, vortex that's out there for them. Um, you know, we can sing the circle of life and be happy about all that, but I, I don't think that they do handle it well. If there's not something greater and bigger at work in my life, then I'm despair. If I don't have hope, you know, and we all have hope. Like my friend Scott pointed me, he says, you still have hope. And we all do. So and we know some good stories that have come out of all this, come out of this prodigal ministry. You know, don't discount those. Don't go, well, why them and not me, God? And we think that sometimes. Why do they have a happy ending? It's important, hope is important, but it's more important what I put my hope in. You know, if I don't put my hope 
in Christ himself? Am I putting it in something else? If I'm putting it in my own powers, my own resources, it, it always tends to fail. And so hope is important, but it's more important when I put my hope in. See, that made it even harder. Mm. I'm the professional. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't happen to professionals. You know, it's like minister's kids. They don't sin, right? <laughs> um, you know, my dad was a doctor. Well, we weren't allowed to get sick. His famous line was, go soak it. <laughs> Everything got soaked. But my head's bleeding open. Go soak it. So that made it harder. But what it's done for me over the years, I think it's made me a much better therapist. I think it's, my empathy is, is genuine, you know. Um, you, you know, uh, I don't carry it home with me, though. I leave it at the door. I lock the door and go be there tomorrow. And it doesn't mean I don't care, but I've got to do it with my own sanity. Um, I think it's given me more insight. <clears throat> um, I think it's given me more insight into God. And, and when I look at people's lives who are a mess, you know, I want to tell them, you know, something's bigger here. And I, I get non-believers that come to see me, but I, I take that backdoor approach with them. I, before it's all ending with a counseling, I mean, they've heard the gospel. And I've had the opportunity to lead several folks to Christ in my office because they, they're in pain. And we're all in pain. And uh, so, yeah, it did, I, was, I was doing this way. I thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I look back on some counseling of people I did 30 years and I go, you are an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you told them to do this? Yeah. Oh. So, we learned. <laughs> I think God speaks to us a lot of times through our protocol. He changes us through our protocol. Yeah. You're welcome. He just said you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> 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 Joey. No, I agree. Yes. Because what does it do? It forces you to look at yourself. Mm-hmm. Not so way that's that mm-hmm. All right. All right, Dick. Thank you very All right. much. Thank you.